Hello everyone and welcome to Context. This program is brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here today do not necessarily represent those of the IHC or the NEH. My name is Joanna Bringhurst and joining us today is Dr. Nick Underwood, a historian of modern Jewish and modern European history from the College of Idaho. Dr. Underwood has taught courses on modern Jewish, European, and world history at Sonoma State University, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Napa Valley College. He has held postdoctoral fellowships at the GHI Pacific Regional Office at the University of California, Berkeley, and the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He also serves as managing editor for the journal American Jewish History and as project manager for the Digital Yiddish Theater Project. Nick, thank you for joining me here today to discuss Jewish history. Many Idahoans have learned about the tragic history of the Holocaust, but do not know much about the full history of the Jewish people. There are thousands of years of rich history to study and we have limited time together. So can you help us understand the essentials and where we can begin learning? So Joanna, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the invitation to, to be here. It's a, it's, a, it's a thrill to participate in this project and with the IHC, um, big supporter of the work that you're doing. And uh, again, just appreciate the invitation. Um, yes, so uh, thousands of years of Jewish history in 30 minutes. I think, I think we can do it, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and I think you're right too. You know, one of the things that hopefully will kind of come out of this conversation is that I think a lot of people when, when, when they have any experience or understanding about Jewish history, it's either tied to kind of two, two moments, right? The Holocaust or kind of biblical history, right? And I think wh what happens in between and after, especially after the Holocaust, is one of the things hopefully will come out of this conversation to kind of really kind of deepen our understanding of a, of a really varied global kind of experience for, 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 for Jews, right? Um, and uh, I think that hopefully that'll kind of come through in this conversation. Thank you. I'm excited to learn more for myself and for our listeners as yeah, well. Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the things we can do is I think it's important to understand kind of the way that kind of Jewish history has, has transformed. And one of the things I will do today is I'm a historian, so um, a lot of obviously when we're talking about Israelites, when we're talking about Jews, we're talking about a religious community. Um, I will focus less on the kind of like the the, the, um, the theology and more really kind of on the on the history. So we'll be thinking about kind of patterns and migration, and we'll talk about language uh, and kind of where Jews have found themselves throughout time, and for some of the reasons for, for that. If that if if that if you think that's an okay approach for that today. sounds perfect. Great. Um, you know, one of the things that I think it's important to understand is, you know, kind of Jewish history has changed a lot. And one of the major kind of turning points was, so if anyone is familiar with the Bible and we're kind of understand the story of kind of like the, the five books of Moses and, and, the, and the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh as it's under, known uh, by its Hebrew acronym, um, uh, we, we know that there is a period in Jewish history when it is temple-based, right? This is a temple in Jerusalem uh, and, and kind of Jewish society, life and culture is centered on, on this uh, temple. Um, this is an extraordinarily important part of, of, of Jewish history, and if anyone is familiar with the book of Leviticus, knows that all the rules kind of put into how one walks into a temple, this is kind of set up for this particular moment in Jewish history. 
Unfortunately, um, there are two temples that exist, uh, and the second temple uh, is destroyed in 70 CE. Uh, and by CE, uh, in Jewish history, you use uh, BCE and CE, so the before the Common Era and Common Era, sometimes also called BC or AD. So when I say CE, I'm referring to kind of AD. Um, in, the, in 70 CE, the Romans destroy the Second Temple, and this kind of fundamentally changes uh, Jewish history. Uh, it goes from uh, a community, a religion, um, a nationality, if you will, uh, that is based on the temple, and we kind of move away from uh, the priests kind of having authority within uh, Judaism and Jewish culture and move to what people refer to as the rise of the rabbis. Um, once the temple is destroyed, uh, we start to see kind of dispersion of Jews around the world in certain places. We'll talk about some of that in a little bit. Um, and what we start to see when we talk about the rise of the rabbis, so I've mentioned the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, the five books of Moses, which is part of that. Um, we start to see the development of what's called the Talmud. Uh, and the Talmud is a compendium of the Mishnah, which is the uh, writing down of the oral Torah. Um, during the period of the Bible, there were oral kind of there was an oral component to the Torah uh, that was circulated. That is written down, uh, and then there's some kind of com uh, compendium to that called the Gemara, which is kind of a way to try to understand to some extent the Mishnah. And over hundreds of years, uh, rabbis debate and kind of think about and put together. Um, the the Talmud. Uh, there's two Talmuds. There is one uh, that is finished first in uh, Jerusalem. It's sometimes referred to as a, either the Jerusalem Talmud or the Palestinian Talmud. Um, both uh, both terms are used. Uh, and then also there's the Babylonian Talmud, and that is the more authoritative one. That is finished in around 550 CE. It takes hundreds of years uh, to put together. The Talmud is an attempt to um, with the basically with the fall of the temple, with Jews now in diaspora spread all over the world, how do we understand Jewish law? How do we kind of um, follow Jewish law? The Talmud is there to try and kind of create what in, in, in Hebrew halacha or, or Jewish law, right? And that's what the Talmud tries to do. So after, so this is why we think of 70 CE as a, as a turning point, right? The, 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 the temple is destroyed. Uh, and then we start to see kind of new uh, new figures in Judaism kind of rise as being kind of authoritative. And it's the rabbis um, and rib the rabbinic order, really, that kind of create and establish this Talmud. Uh, and in these uh, years of diaspora become one of the two uh, major books that kind of Jews uh, kind of utilize in their daily lives. The, the, the Bible, of course, and, and the Talmud. Great. Can I ask you, when most people think of Jews, they think of their religious identity, mm -hmm. but you talked about an ethnicity and yes. a race beyond. Yes. Just a, just a belief system. Can you explain more? Yeah. Um, you know, in the cl classes that I, that I teach, the, one of the questions I always pose to students is, what does it mean to be Jewish, right? And I think that that's one of the things that changes over time. Um, clearly, when we're talking about ancient Judaism, when we're talking about the temple period, this is everything, right? You know, I think that it's interesting sometimes to think about religion as almost a modern construct, right? I mean, if you're thinking about ancient times, or thinking about even the years 500 CE, religion, culture, society, all these things are intertwined with one another, right? It's um, we, we see kind of over time 
the separation of some of these and we kind of see like we'll, we'll start to see uh, as we move into the more of the modern period people who are Jewish who identify as Jewish but not religious at all right um, and that changes over time um, depends on who you are and where you are like how you answer those questions um, but yes um, there is a time when Jewishness uh, is really kind of uh, uh, confined to Judaism and how Judaism is kind of an overarching kind of component of life. Uh, but as Jews leave um, uh, their ancient homelands uh, and go to other places, their interaction with re religion, their interactions with other societies change. And they're almost always in kind of constant discussion uh, with those greater societies. I'm not sure if that's a, a satisfying yes. answer, yes. but yes, it's complicated. <laughs> of course. And do all rabbis agree with each other on how to understand the Talmud and the Bible, or is there a range of thinking? There is a range of thinking, and you know, one of the things that I think is beautiful about kind of the Talmud. Um, especially, so the way that it's printed, there's originally the, the Babylonian Talmud that's printed, and then over into the Middle Ages, what winds up happening is that there are later versions of the Talmud that are actually um, printed with later rabbinic commentary. There is a famous uh, rabbi, uh, his name is Rashi, uh, he lives in medieval France, and he becomes one of the um, most prolific commentators on both the uh, Torah, on the, on the Bible, and also uh, the Talmud. So there are later printings of the Talmud that have Rashi's and some other people's commentaries on it. And one of the beautiful things about it is you'll see them completely disagreeing with each other. They're debating. I think sometimes, um, you know, the, the most uh, Jewish approach to texts is that they're in constant debate with those texts. And what does that mean? Why this word? How is this word used here in this section? Whereas maybe in the book of Numbers, that Hebrew is, is used in, uh, that word is used differently here. And then maybe later, um, uh, it's used differently. How do we understand the use of these words? So the, the rabbis over time, still today, um, uh, are debate on, on how to understand um, the mission of the Gemara and, of course, also the, the Bible. So Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So then after this time period, Jews begin to spread out across Europe, across the Middle East? What did that look like? Yeah, so first after kind of leaving or kind of dispersion um, up until it's one of the things that I think is 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 uh, eye-opening to, to, to many people is that between the 7th and the 13th centuries 90% of glo uh, global uh, global Jewry lived in Islamic societies, mostly and around the Mediterranean, uh, and also up into the Iberian Peninsula, which until 1492 was uh, primarily controlled by Islamic empires. Um, so I think, you know, so primarily the initial migrations are in and around the Mediterranean. Um, and like I said, from the 7th to about the 13th century, uh, the majority of global Jewry live in those lands. It's after, um, it's really kind of after um, 1492, which is with first the Inquisition and the expulsion of Jews from the Iberian Peninsula by uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, that we start to see kind of like movement into other parts of, of the world. But it's a it's a it's an important thing to understand that first kind of the migration is kind of uh, regional to some extent, uh, and then we start to see kind of Jews like expand out to other places around the world. When did Jews first come to America, North and South America? So, um, yes. So the, the first, um, 
So I'll first say this. So Jews start to move into Europe, mainly around the year 1000, but in very small numbers in the Rhineland and the uh, western part of Germany. Uh, into the Americas, it happens after the expulsion, and it happens as a result of the expulsion. So the first Jewish communities in the Americas that we see are in a, um, a, a area, port town in the northern part of Brazil called Recife, uh, around just shortly after the year 1500. Um, and then it's from there um, that we start to see the first uh, kind of arrivals of Jews in uh, what we now refer to as North America uh, in the Dutch colony of uh, New Amsterdam. And it's about uh, 1654 that there are there's actually recent uh, recent uh, uh, history that's actually kind of uncovered that this is probably the first established community that comes to North America. There apparently are a few other um, uh, uh, there are a few other Jews that have come to uh, this area, but they don't they don't stay. They leave. Um, but we still refer to as uh, this community from Recife that comes to New Amsterdam as the first kind of uh, Jewish community in North America. Wow, I did not realize it was so early. I think yes. we always think of the Puritans. Yes. Something here, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And I also should note, too, that so, and I and I apologize for not mentioning this earlier, is, you know, when we start to see this these diasporas from kind of ancient homelands, we start to see kind of also different communities of Jews emerge, right? So when we're talking about the Jews being dis, uh, displaced from the Iberian Peninsula, we're talking about a group of Jew, uh, Jews who are, who are known as uh, Sephardim, uh, or, uh, which comes from the old biblical term for what is known as the uh, Iberian Peninsula called Sepharad. Um, so when we're talking about the Jews that come to the Americas first, those are Sephardic Jews who are establishing themselves in Recife and then in uh, New Amsterdam. The other uh, communities of Jews are Ashkenazi Jews, who are Jews that originate from Central Europe, Ashkenaz, um, and also uh, a category of Arab Jews, uh, who we probably won't talk about very much today because we only have a limited amount of time, uh, but Misrahi Jews too. So are kind of mostly Jews of Arab descent to some extent. Um, so when we're talking about these, when we're talking about um, global Jewry, we're talking about different communities. Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews sometimes have different practices and how they interpret um, certain uh, holidays and whatnot. Um, use the same books, right? I mean, Bible, Talmud, uh, but sometimes even there, there's different, uh, there's different traditions within um, those, uh, those communities. How were Jews received by those communities and what was life like for them? It's, um, it depends. Um, the community in Recife uh, is, uh, is stable there for a number of years. The reason they move uh, is because the government there is starting to kind of um, put more uh, restrictions on kind of uh, uh, mobility practice. Um, so, you know, there's some stability there, but they move uh, that's why they moved to New Amsterdam, and there's even kind of issues there with the governor of, uh, of New Amsterdam at the time. Um, in the Islamic lands, for a, a good number of years, the, um, the relationship between Jews and their larger host societies is relatively, relatively stable. There's, in fact, a, a good 100 to 200 years around the, maybe around the 7th to 9th century that some people refer to as the, uh, the Golden Age. Um, uh, for Jewry in the Islamic lands, uh, lots of cultural um, 
uh, production, lots of philosophical, religious kind of production too, a real kind of uh, really almost kind of conversation too with Islamic society. There's there's debates during this period as to whether or not Hebrew should adopt an Arabic kind of uh, meter to it in terms of prose and literature. So there's lots of kind of moments of um, stability, uh, upward mobility to some extent within these uh, larger prescriptive societies. Um, we also see the same thing at times in, in the European lands, too. So um, as, you know, uh, again, most people are familiar with the Holocaust. We know of the tragic events of those moments. But before that, where Jews are finding themselves, um, they're experiencing uh, moments of um, of autonomy in some cases, some cases, sometimes cultural kind of religious flourishing, um, you know, the... the um, the Talmud is developed in an area that will ultimately become part of uh, the Islamic empires, especially after the ascension of Muhammad and the development of Islam. Um, so we see kind of some major things happening when Jews are kind of within these societies. We also do know that at moments there are moments of persecution in all of these places that, that we're seeing, whether um, whether it's a, a new caliphate that kind of has different restrictions than their predecessor, whether it's the colonial authorities in, uh, in South America that are putting on new restrictions, um, whether it's um, you know, people in, in the European lands encountering Jews and thinking of them as uh, enemies of the faith during, uh, uh, during the Crusades. So we have a, a bunch of moments of kind of both hostilities and also kind of prosperity, or I don't know, maybe prosperity is not the, the right word, um, but stability. <laughs> So then in the 18th, in the 19th century, things started to change with the rise of Yiddish culture. Can you help us understand what that, what does Yiddish mean and, and why was this a successful change? Yeah, so the rise of Yiddish for, so it's, it's one thing that I, um, I think about a lot. Um, my own personal research deals with Yiddish, uh, specifically in France, so I think about the rise of, of Yiddish culture and Hopefully also this will kind of uh, dovetail into a conversation about Ladino culture, which is uh, another kind of uh, language uh, that emerges. Um, one thing I should say actually before I talk about Yiddish is, you know, one of the things that's really fascinating and interesting about kind of the Jewish diaspora um, is that whenever Jews are kind of encountering these societies like we were just talking about, they're developing sometimes their own versions of those languages. And there are on record dozens of Judeo languages, which are typically like languages um, that are based on the major language, but written in the Hebrew script and sometimes involving uh, Hebrew components into that language. So, for instance, there's Judeo-Arabic, uh, which is written from by Jews in the Islamic empires. Um, that would be Arabic written in Hebrew characters, and it would be a version of Hebrew, uh, excuse me, Arabic that might include Hebraisms uh, for kind of um, daily life, right? Um, uh, Yiddish begins as Judeo-German, right? It's a version of High Middle German that, it, that is established around or emerges around the year 1000. And it's a version of German that is written in um, the Hebrew script. Uh, and then as Jews kind of move around, as Jews from Central Europe are kind of expelled and kind of end up in Eastern Europe, Yiddish develops a, a large kind of Slavic component to it also. It also has this he uh, Hebrew component, mostly for kind of religious purposes, others, um, others as well, but um, uh, uh, a good uh, portion of the Hebrew used in, in, in Yiddish refers to kind of uh, religious 
uh, religious components. Um, so that's all to say that there's a really vi wide, vast, um, um, varied um, kind of uh, Jewish linguistic history uh, that goes along with this diaspora. Um, the Sephardic Jews um, develop um, it's debated as to how we can refer to it, but I think uh, simply there's a Judeo-Spanish or Judeo-Espanol, which is also sometimes referred to as Ladino, uh, and Sephardic Jews, especially in places like Izmir and Salonika, really kind of develop a, a flourishing kind of Ladino culture as well. So whenever Jews kind of are moving around, they're adopting languages, uh, and there are scholars working on um, these Jewish languages, and they're finding that there are dozens and dozens of them that have emerged around, around the world at different periods of time. Um, but back to Yiddish. <laughs> um, so I mentioned that Yiddish is a, is a, is a language that kind of emerges uh, in the, uh, around the year 1000, um, <clears throat> and it's used widely by a number of Jews in, in Eastern Europe. After Jews are kind of like moved from Central Europe into, to Eastern Europe, it's used by a number of them. It is kind of part of um, the, uh, the, the Jewish Enlightenment that happens um, Around the same time as the European Enlightenment, it's also a language used uh, primarily by uh, Hasidic Jews as they're kind of establishing themselves around the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and it's also a moment, it's also the language that in the 19th century will wind up being used uh, by Yiddish-speaking Eastern European Jews who are trying to figure out um, how to establish kind of new national identities, right? This is the 19th century is a period when Europe is experimenting and figuring out how to identify itself uh, in the wake of empire, in the wake of, you know, the fall of the kings and the queens, um, uh, kind of uh, these new national identities, uh, and Jews are doing the, same, doing the same thing, right? And Yiddish is kind of part of this, where in the 19th century, um, uh, it, it's, it's an effort to kind of create this, this, this literature, um, uh, kind of really kind of create this world um, just beyond the, the daily vernacular kind of within Yiddish. And we start to see a rise of secular Yiddish culture that really kind of has this guise of like national identity embedded into it. Um, and it's a really remarkable uh, project that happens. It's mostly in the late 19th century. Uh, we see a bunch of, a number of writers kind of switched from maybe writing in Hebrew, maybe writing in uh, Russian, to writing, uh, writing in, uh, in Yiddish. Uh, and from that, we get some of the most uh, well-known um, uh, Jewish stories, um, most notably uh, from a writer named Shalom Aleichem, who writes um, a number of stories based on a, 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 a milk uh, carrier named Tevya. Uh, he will write a number of st short stories based on him, and it's actually those short stories that wind up being turned into the Broadway musical Fiddler on the Roof. Um, so we have a, a wide kind of flourishing um, <clears throat> uh, kind of uh, Yiddish culture that, that is really kind of happening in the late 19th century and carrying on into, into the early 20th century. And in Eastern Europe, we're, we're talking about um, millions of, of Yiddish speakers at this period too, which is also, which if you think about it on a very basic level, makes sense as to why why Jews would want to start to create in this language because this is the language that people are actually using, right? This is how people are communicating. So perhaps we could elevate this to some sort of different kind of stature. So Jews in Europe at this time are talking to each other in Yiddish every day and then starting to write and create fiction and explore their culture using the Yiddish language. Mm -hmm. This is so fascinating to me and I'm curious, did the rise of Yiddish culture come because Jews wanted to be a 
part of the communities where they had settled, but also retain their Jewishness? Mm -hmm. Or how would you view that? So I think it's, you know, it's important to understand that the context that this is happening in, right? When we think of Eastern Europe, we're talking about Europe, but we're not really talking about Central or Western Europe, right? When we think of Central Europe, we think of German-speaking lands, right? These are mostly, um, uh, mostly monolingual spaces. It's not entirely true, but generally speaking, um, you know, a form of German, like Yiddish once was, right? Western Europe also, you know, speak, people are speaking in, in vast lands, maybe um, Spanish, um, some places I know also Basque, of course, in some of the, 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 the Pyrenees and the Basque lands there, but primarily Spanish, maybe French, right? So we have, Eastern Europe is a different space, and it's multilingual, right? And it's also a place that develops in terms of kind of like nation states very differently, right? The way that Eastern Europe is constructed and th through really uh, World War One is a very different place than the rest in Central and, and Western Europe. So, and I, 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 I say that only to say that these are multilingual, multinational kind of empires. And so, yes, to, to, to answer your question, that is what's happening, right? We can develop these cultures, we can develop this identity that is um, an attempt to kind of maintain some sort of, some sort of Jewishness that might work in this framework. Maybe it's a linguistic kind of national understanding, um, but yet uh, still part of these larger societies. That is really interesting because you're right, when we think of Europe today, it's nation states, clearly defined borders, languages. Mm -hmm. But Eastern Europe was so different at that time. All of Europe was. Mm -hmm. In the early 20th century, mm -hmm. conflict and other factors caused a lot of migrations mm -hmm. around the globe. Yes. What was happening to Jewish communities in Europe at that time? So, that, it's a, uh, John, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll kind of, I want to go back to one thing that I said before, too, is that kind of so Yiddish is not only it's functioning exactly the, the space that you're that you're talking about. Um, Yiddish is also the language. So um, when the Russian Empire uh, absorbs or takes um, um, a majority of Poland, um, they mark off what's called the Pale of Settlement. Uh, and it's a it's an area restricted prime it's not only Jews but Jews are restricted to this area so it's also there's a few things that are happening here so the Yiddish is happening in the exact context um, but it's also happening in this space where Jews are restricted to and the Pale of Settlement uh, is in place until the early 20th century um, so it's also there's this other element too that where kind of like Yiddish is forming in a, in a time and a place um, where uh, Jews are restricted, um, they're facing kind of limits on where they can go and move, uh, so it's also a way for Jews to kind of connect with themselves. So it's, it's simultaneously informed by kind of like the larger forces at play in Eastern Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but also kind of from the particular Jewish experience, which is um, that Jews in Eastern Europe are living in these, uh, in these, uh, in, in the Pale of Settlement. And the Pale of Settlement covers um, uh, a vast majority of the Eastern Europe that we would be, uh, that we're familiar with, um, uh, places that we're talking about today, um, Kiev, um, Warsaw, um, all these, Poland, what now we think of as Poland and, and Ukraine, Belarus, these are, that was the kind of original, like, that was the area of the Pale Settlement. Um, so, so yes, so Joanna, I, I, yeah, so okay, so, excuse me, um, 
So turn of the century, what winds up happening is we start to see kind of uh, conflict also arise of a lot of different ideologies. The 19th century, right, is kind of like when when capitalism starts to flourish and socialism and communism and all these isms that you know in a in in in, in, in at least in a, when I teach our civilization course, you know, this is the 19th century is the century of isms, right? Everything is popping up, romanticism. Um, and Jews are kind of also kind of attaching themselves to some of these movements. Uh, sometimes they see themselves as, as way to kind of, ways to get out of this, some of their uh, conditions, some of them, and they see them as liberatory in a, in a variety of ways. Um, but the conflicts that happen in the turn of the century do wind up affecting uh, Jews. Um, we start to see Jews uh, involved in revolutionary movements as early as uh, 1905. Um, we also start to see um, uh, with the with the with that violence. Um, we start to see pogroms uh, kind of emerge, right? So as early as earlier than this, but still kind of definitely after uh, 1881, we start to see pogroms in Eastern Europe. A pogrom is a comes from, is a is a is a word used that comes from uh, a Slavic word uh, that can mean a lot of things, but typically within the Jewish experience, it means kind of a targeted violence against a Jewish community. And a pogrom could be uh, five to hundreds or thousands of Jews kind of being attacked. So that's what I mean by the word uh, pogrom. So uh, with the turn of the century, we start to see these rise of pogroms, um, and it really kind of affects how Jews start to think about themselves, how they start to kind of think about ways of organizing themselves. Um, it should be, um, you know, when we when we start to think about the rise of, of Yiddish and the rise of like this particular kind of Eastern European Jewish national, however we want to understand it, identity, it's at the same moment that we start to see Zionism and modern Hebrew kind of be established as, a, as another potential to, potential kind of Jewish national identity too. So the conflicts, the violence, the 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 um, disruption that is happening uh, in Eastern Europe uh, in the late and early 20th century, even before we get to World War One, is really kind of affecting Jews and how they're understanding their places in society. So can you explain Zionism to us and how, um, how maybe how it was perceived and what it originally was meant? Sure. So yeah, so we see Zionism emerge in the late 19th century. Um, there are um, as I mentioned, there is a rise in kind of um, anti-Semitic attacks by way of these pogroms. Um, but we also start to see um, pr um, primarily in, well, not primarily in France, we have an affair called the Dreyfus Affair, which is um, Alfred Dreyfus is a high-ranking military official in the French army. Uh, and he is brought up for treason uh, because he is suspected of stealing, um, giving secrets to the Germans, yeah, secret military um, um, uh, secrets. Uh, it winds up being a large affair, uh, and essentially he is accused uh, because he's a uh, suspect for being Jewish. Um, and for a number of people, this is a defining moment. Um, typically, the story goes that Theodor Herzl, who is a Viennese journalist and writer, is in Paris at the same at this time, and uh, responds to or uh, is is writing about the Dreyfus affair. It comes up with this idea of creating a Jewish national homeland. We know now that actually he, he developed some of these ideas prior, but the Dreyfus Affair is definitely still a linchpin in kind of the understanding of the development of Zionism. Um, and Zionism is a movement that, see, that sought um, to establish a autonomous political homeland, and I'm actually gonna split that up a little bit, for Jews. 
Um, I say political because I mentioned Theodor Herzl, who was sometimes called the father of political Zionism. But in the earlier 20th century, there's a variety of Zionisms, right? There's a cultural Zionism that is uh, um, put forth by a, a person named Ahad Ha'am, um, who really thinks that it should be a Hebrew culture that drives people to a particular place, and there's more of a grassroots way of kind of establishing a national home. Herschel thinks that it ought to be done by way of kind of um, uh, international diplomacy. Um, so there's a variety of, of Zionisms that happen and emerge in the late, early 20th century. Um, originally, um, it was not always thought that Palestine would be the place that this national homeland would, would emerge. There's many people who were thinking of places around, uh, around, uh, around the world. Um, La Pampas in Argentina, the so-called the, the, the Uganda plan in, kind of, um, in West Africa. Um, there's a number of Zionists, too, that think that there should be um, that, the, that the homeland should be placed in eastern Africa. Um, there's actually there's research right now going on that there was actually in Baja, California, or in Baja, uh, an attempt, uh, kind of in coordination. There's some students who are, grad students who are working on this right now, that there were a number of inquiries around the world uh, um, about where this potential homeland could be. Um, after 1905, um, with a pogrom in Kishinev, um, the Zionist, the International Zionist Organization, the Congress, um, that is when they kind of start focusing more on um, what they would call Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, or, or Palestine, as it would have been called then under the Ottoman Empire. Um, um, and even kind of dating to the Roman Empire. Um, so yeah, so Zionism is this attempt, this varied attempt, um, through a different routes about how to find a Jewish national homeland somewhere which is in opposition to, to some extent what the people who were advocating for Yiddish were doing because the Yiddish speakers thought that they could create that national autonomy in the places where they saw themselves. Um, of course, that's not true of all Yiddish speakers, but uh, you know, if we're thinking big picture about kind of how these national identities are evolving and how they're emerging, um, they're, they're, they have different kind of, uh, they have rootedness um, understood differently. <laughs> okay. So going, I'm not in, sure if that's helpful yeah, or not. Yeah. <laughs> so as the 20th century is progressing, there isn't one unified idea among Jewish people of what Zionism means or where should be a homeland or even what that looks like. But most are living and speaking different languages and different nationalities, but Yiddish culture kind of unites them across those borders. Is that fair? For Yiddish speakers. For Yiddish speakers, yes. right. I mean... But um, in Spain... In Spain, in, Ladino speakers yeah. and speakers who are speaking various languages, their their approaches to this is good, are going to be very different, right? Ladino speakers in the Ottoman Empire in the early stages are not, are not supportive of some of the... Or this is, of course, I'm speaking very generally here. Um, Generally speaking, not um, not supportive of the Zionist movement because they have some stability within the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire, right? We are talking about Jews in Europe that are that are experiencing violence and instability uh, and kind of creating some of these ideals uh, and ideas around that, right? So, um, you know, Joanna, it's actually if we go back to our earlier conversation about the Talmud and how rabbis are con con uh, constantly debating what how to understand the Mishnah Gemara. Uh, and also um, the Bible, um, that could be extended to the conversation we're having now, which is that Jews around the world are 
are not in um, kind of agreement, right? There's lots of different approaches and debates and arguments about how uh, how these kind of uh, issues uh, ought to be solved. So um, even okay. among the Yiddish speakers, there's debate, right? Is it, um, do we... Uh, do we kind of adhere to Republican societies, right? Like places like France. Is that where we can create this, um, this Yiddish cultural world for us? Is it adherence to socialism or communism, right? Is it like, you know, an abandoning of these types of frameworks that, that, uh, that are kind of seen in some of these states? Um, so even within the Yiddish communities and, 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 um, and Zionist communities too, there's debates about how how this should work, how this looks like. Um, so it only complicates, I, I'm only complicating the picture further, unfortunately, and not making it simpler, um, because there is there is agreement among some groups, but there are many groups that are in disagreement with each other. History is complicated. It's, you know, uh, my students hate it when, uh, when, I, when they ask me a question, I say, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> so in the 20th century now, we have World War I. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of change in Europe, um, instability, mm -hmm. famine, depression, mm -hmm. leads to a lot of migration, mm -hmm. which all sets the stage for the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. What do we need to, to understand to be able to put into context the Holocaust in the greater story of the Jewish people? You know, I think John, the way that you set it up is, is a really nice way to do that, right? This is a moment of instability, not just for Jews, but for Europeans, right? In the wake of World War One. So one thing that happens, and we should kind of talk about this a little bit, is that, you know, when we have, we mentioned the Dreyfus Affair. Um, the Dreyfus Affair is a turning point in kind of thinking about Jews and society, right? Many scholars and historians think of like prior to the Dreyfus Affair, when we think of anti-Semitism, we're thinking about anti-Judaism, right? It's targeted violence sometimes against Jews because of the practices that they're doing as primarily not Christian, right? Most pogroms, most kind of anti-Jewish violence happens in, in, in Christian-dominated lands like Europe, right? And there's historical reasons for that. Um, doesn't It does happen in the Islamic lands, but not as common. Um, um, so with the Dreyfus Affair, though, what we start to see is we start to see the shift away from anti-Judaism to something that is really kind of embedded into the racial theories that are emerging in Europe in the late 19th century. And we start to see a racialization of Jews, right? And so it's important to understand that because it helps contextualize how and why in the early 20th century this so-called Jewish question emerges so broadly uh, and uh, is confounding for people because of how um, non-Jews are starting to imagine Jews in racial categories and assigning them kind of um, inherent or essentialized qualities that they think uh, are um, uh, disrupting their particular societies, right? So it's important to understand that, especially if we think about uh, Hitler's anti-Semitism, it is a very racialized anti-Semitism. So it's important to understand that this kind of, uh, along with this instability kind of socially and culturally and politically that's happening in Europe at this time, we're also seeing this rise of this kind of racialized anti-Semitism that is feeding uh, into these changes. And it's not just in Europe that these anti-Semitisms, um, this racialized anti-Semitism are spreading. Um, 
but to kind of for to kind of keep us on track a little bit, we'll kind of focus on on the European uh, case um, here. But so yeah, so that's what's happening, um, and we start to see kind of uh, Jews being kind of scapegoated, really kind of for all the ills of society, right? Whether it's the rise, you know, the, the anti-Semitic tropes that exist that you know Jews kind of control money and are money lenders, and you know, kind of therefore uh, um, kind of control global finance uh, in the early twentieth century. <clears throat> There was a famous banking family, the Rothschilds, were both based in, in France. Um, you know, uh, that was a, a code among anti-Semites uh, for kind of targeting Jews as kind of um, being in charge of global finance. There's uh, contemporary parallels uh, today, um, but historically speaking, the, the Rothschilds uh, were part of that. Alongside that, though, too, Jews are kind of blamed for uh, Bolshevism, communism, right? So they're kind of like uh, attached to these um, these elements in society that um, people are threatened by, right? And so kind of we start to see, this is where this racialized component comes in, right? Where like there's this kind of, um, people anti-Semites start to think that there's something essentialized about these Jews that kind of make them uh, um, uh, have a propensity towards, <laughs> um, towards these movements, right? And it, and it has to do with othering, scapegoating, how do we blame the ill, how do we simply um, blame or place blame or understand the root causes for uh, our societies uh, and in the European case primarily what happens in the early 20th century is that Jews start to be targeted um, they were of course like I mentioned before targeted uh, before but we start to see this uptick in kind of these uh, these moments of anti-semitism um, fed through uh, this lens of kind of a racialized understanding uh, of them at this particular moment okay so Hitler in seeking power in Germany lies about Jews to have a scapegoat, a convenient scapegoat, as to why the German economy is in shambles, why German people feel that they are not receiving their proper place in the global order of things. I think it's really important when we talk about like othering and scapegoating to be really clear that this was not true. <laughs> These were lies. Yes. And Hitler sought to manipulate German people to gain power by lying about blaming Jewish people for the troubles in their country. Yes. And I think, Joanna, it's a, it's a good point to make about all of these kind of uh, stereotypes that they're not rooted in truth right um, we'll step back for a second to kind of even flesh that out even more um, there is an anti-semitic myth that um, develops uh, called the blood libel <clears throat> which is that Jews kidnap a Christian child uh, murder that child and use that blood as an ingredient in matzah for Passover uh, I have seen a number of recipes for matzah over the years, and I've never seen one ever that includes even a teeny tiny drop of blood. Right? Oh so, no! No, never, okay. never seen it, never seen it. Um, so yes, to your so point, we can roll that out. Yes, roll that out. Um, so yeah, so the point. I mean, just to further your point, that these ideas are uh, based on kind of fear and scapegoating, and an attempt to very simply uh, blame someone for larger societal lives. 
And in the case of Europe, when we're talking about a small population, right, usually these Jewish communities in these, in these places are 1%, 3%, one 3%, 3%, very small. Uh, it's easy to blame a minority for society's ills, right? Um, so yes, they're all completely fabricated. They're not, um, they're, there's no truth to, a, you know, a, um, kind of a world, you know, group of, Jewish cabal that's uh, you know controlling all of global finances. Many people in the early 20th century thought um, the the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a, a fabricated uh, book by the Russian Empire that is a secret, a, supposedly a secret meeting of Jews that are trying to, to that meet to control uh, global finance. Um, completely fabricated. You know, if we look back at Jewish history, especially in these places, um, you know, Jews in, in Germany had some upward mobility and there was a large German Jewish middle class. Um, same thing in, in France, um, especially by the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. But if we think about like Jews broadly conceived in Europe, we're talking about a fairly impoverished population. We're not talking about a wealthy population. Yes, there are, we mentioned a couple wealthy families, but again, just to kind of prove or to, to further your point, that a lot of this is, is just fabricated. They're, they're, I think you're right, they're lies. <laughs> I think you, the, the word you used is, is perfect. Um, uh, and, um, and, and they're not really kind of, they're, 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 they're rooted in an attempt to kind of um, create an explanation for the ills of society than they are rooted in any actual, actual truth. Absolutely. So Hitler escalates his anti-Semitic beliefs and views after the Nazi party takes total control of the German government and begins a systematic campaign of exterminating Jews from Germany. And as Germany expands its borders through invading other nations to exterminate Jews in those nations as well. Mm -hmm. um, the Holocaust is very widely known We've all learned about in school, read books, seen movies. But what happened after the Holocaust? Because I guess, well, I will be honest, when I was growing up learning about the Holocaust, the story that I, or the narrative that I intuited was, but the war ended and the Allies beat Hitler and it was, it's all okay from there. But the first time that I traveled to Europe, I really learned for myself how successful Hitler and his regime was in really murdering millions of people. And they were largely successful in that goal, mm -hmm. but not totally successful. Mm -hmm. What happens to the Jewish people after the Holocaust? How do survivors rebuild? Where do they go? Mm -hmm. Walk us through. So, I mean, John, just like everything, it's complicated. Um, you know, and, and one thing I'll say too is, you know, when we were talking about Yiddish culture before, you know, that is the culture that is murdered by the Nazis, right? Most of um, the mass killing happens in Eastern Europe, right? Germany has a very small Jewish population. Um, so, you know, it's when Germany kind of enters the Eastern Eastern Europe uh, after the outbreak of war in September 1939 um, that Hitler encounters and has these kind of Jews within their land. So it's, a, it's an important thing to remember 
that that mass murder happened in Eastern Europe, right? Um, so, so you mean Poland, Ukraine, yes, Belarus, yes, the former Yugoslavia, yes, those those places, right? I mean, if we if you map um, where the five main killing centers are, the, the Operation Reinhardt and others, um, those are in Eastern Europe, right? There are concentration camps all over, right? There's tens of thousands of con concentration camps, and you know, colleagues at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uncovering that there's estimates, I think it's now like 55,000 concentration camps all over Europe. But in terms of like mass killing, that's really happening in Eastern Europe, both by way of these camps, uh, by these uh, extermination centers, but also um, by way of um, uh, of uh, some some people refer to it as the the Holocaust by bullets, the the, the murdering of, of millions of Jews just by uh, armed people on the front lines. Um, so that's all to say that this is kind of, you know, to kind of tie that to the, to the Yiddish cultural component of it, right, is that um, we, uh, we do see Yiddish culture come back, but it's, it's, it's slow because of that is who the target was. Um, after the war, it's a complicated story for, for many people. Uh, it's um, Jews who are liberated. Um, there, are, there are choices, but there are fewer choices. The, the ways to get out of Europe or stay in Europe are difficult. Um, there winds up being a series of displacement persons camps um, that are established in the early wake of the war. Um, some of them remain open until the 1950s, and they're an attempt to try and rehome um, rehome these uh, Jews, right? Um, some cases it's where they originally came from. Some places we see Jews going to places such as South Africa, Argentina. Um, uh, there's a number uh, that try to make their way through Brazil and Uruguay. Uh, also, Jews go to places like Mexico, and then of course, uh, we, a number of Holocaust survivors come to the United States uh, and, and dramatically uh, kind of transform the, uh, the, the American Jewish population. Um, you know, if we think about the Holocaust, uh, one thing that it does, and you know, we kind of talked about kind of Jews migrating, and we talked about Jews going to South Africa in the wake of the expulsion from uh, the Iberian Peninsula. We talked about Jews in the Islamic lands and how that changes. Um, uh, the Holocaust really is another moment of transformation of global, global Jewish population, uh, where uh, the centers of Jewish uh, life are no longer in Europe. They will now wind up being in, in other places. And, and after uh, May of 1948 and the, the establishment of the State of Israel, uh, we'll, we'll over time see Israel, the United States, and then by the uh, mid-50s, early 60s, France will end up being the third largest Jewish population in the world. So the Holocaust does kind of cause a major transformation of where um, where Jews are um, because of murder and also because of the migration that happens as, as a result of that. So their attempts to establish themselves happen um, in a variety of ways. Like I mentioned, there's camps. Um, people are trying to make their ways to different places around the world. There are also Jews that are returning trying to return home to the to their homes in, in Europe. Um, there are some estimates that in the early aftermath of the war, there's about 1,500 Jews that try to go back to Berlin. Um, there are a number of Jews who uh, return to France or go to France anew. Um, there's about 35,000 Jews that migrate to France by the late 1940s who had not been in France before. Um, but the situation for them in a lot of these European places is, is not good. Um, because it was not good for anyone in Europe, because this was a, a global total war. Um, there were housing shortages, there was political instability, um, economic crises. Um, uh, so they were trying to establish themselves back into places that were, you know, had been destroyed in, in, in a number of ways. 
So the attempt to kind of reintegrate into European society was it was a difficult one. Um, but um, I'm working on a new new book um, that is specifically trying to answer this question: What happens to Jews who go back to France, uh, and especially Yiddish speakers who go back to France, and what do they do? And a number of them, despite the difficulties in trying to reestablish their communities and their homes, sometimes having to fight in court to get their homes back, or maybe there's dressers or bureaus or possessions that have been stolen um, during the war, um, they are trying to reestablish their cultural ways of life. Um, and then uh, they're doing it relatively quickly. Um, so there are attempts to kind of reinstitute some of these uh, cultural practices. Um, French-speaking Jews do the same. German-speaking Jews in Germany do the same as well. There are Jewish populations that, that remain in, in Europe. Um, Hitler was not successful in eradicating Jewish life from Europe. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these attempts actually are, how can I say this politely, uh, are a response to that in kind of saying that, you know, uh, at least the, um, the figures that I am researching and writing about are very, very deliberate in the attempt to reestablish Jewish life in Europe is a response to Hitlerism, as the word that they use, is a response to Hitlerism. And so there's this kind of like this attempt to kind of recreate life there as in, in response to the genocide that had just happened. Um, and it wasn't an easy task, like I mentioned. It's a, it's, it's, um, uh, it is a, is a, uh, a ruined landscape that they're trying to do this. And so there are a number of different paths that, that people take in, um, in trying to reestablish themselves. Um, some of these, uh, if we're talking about Yiddish speakers, some of these Yiddish speakers try to maintain Yiddish. Some of them shed it. Um, in, in, in North America, um, there is. Um, uh, there's a number of Yiddish speakers who seek refuge here, and a number of them um, don't transmit um, Yiddish. They try to integrate or assimilate into maybe Canadian or, or uh, U.S. societies and shed, uh, shed Yiddish to some extent. Um, so there is a diff there's a variety of ways, of course. I mean, this is the story of our conversation. Uh, there's a variety of ways that Jews kind of respond to their post-war moments, and some of it is to kind of maintain those cultures, and some of those are to um, integrate uh, and maintain a Jewishness, but in a different way that maybe works in uh, these new settings for them. So how would you describe the um, state of Jewish communities in 2023? In the world? Or? Yeah, yeah. Start in the United States. I mean, I think in the United States, it's a, you know, there's a long Jewish history here, and I think that, it's, I mean, it's hard to talk about, you know, kind of the American Jewish community, right? I mean, uh, you know, in my own work on France, I talk about French Jewish communities, plural, because there's a number of them, and they're not always in agreement with each other, and, and it's probably safe to be, that's probably true about in the United States as well, right? Um, there are a number of Jewish communities, ethnic, religious, um, political, uh, and I think a number of them are, you know, um, uh, advocating for themselves and kind of prominent in, in a number of places. Um, the Hasidic community uh, in and around the United States, mostly uh, based in, in, in New York, is, is almost, you know, bringing Yiddish back because of their um, uh, 
uh, because of the growth of their families and how they maintain Yiddish in those communities, a very different Yiddish and different Yiddish cultural world than existed among secular Yiddish speakers in Eastern Europe, of course, but still nonetheless, you know, a, a challenge to kind of uh, bring some of those uh, elements back. Um, uh, we've had, you know, the, the, the global, the, the American Jewish uh, community remains, uh, um, uh, you know, integrated and successful in a, in a number of a number of ways. Um, I mean, it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult and challenging uh, question to answer, and probably is the topic of a of a different conversation. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think is kind of um, emblematic of of the Jewish history in, in, in the Americas. Here is that it's diverse and um, varied. Excuse me, um, and um, uh, I think integrated in into the fabric of American society probably in ways that most people don't recognize or realize um, in a number of ways. Absolutely. I think most Idahoans would be surprised to know how long there has been Jewish communities in Idaho. Mm -hmm. um, here in Boise, where we're recording, we have had um, a Jewish community since the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we start to see um, a Jewish presence, uh, you know, established Jewish presence in, in Idaho from from work that I've read uh, in the mid 19th century to mid 1800s, when Jews started to come out here, um, primarily in mining, um, and then uh, there's a remarkable Jewish history to Idaho that I don't think most people realize. Uh, Boise has the longest. Let me get this right: the longest continuously used synagogue west of the Mississippi. Which means that so there is a there was a synagogue that was established in the mid 1890s 1895 or the community that was established in the mid 1990s mid 1890s and shortly after that uh, a synagogue was constructed um, I believe it was um, I think it's built in 1895 um, that building although it's no longer it's in its original space that building is still used uh, by the Jewish community in Boise and it is uh, again it is the longest running Continuously, continuously used synagogue uh, west of the Mississippi. There are older synagogues west of the Mississippi, west of the Mississippi, but they're not used as synagogues anymore. Um, and it's a the building is on the uh, National Register of Historic Places. Uh, it's a it's a it's a beautiful Moorish design, kind of late nineteenth century. It's a really it's a really beautiful building. Um, but yes, and and even more so, not just the 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 synagogue, the historic synagogue here. But Idaho, for a good portion of the 20th century, supported two, and at least in Boise, two, uh, two Jewish communities. Um, there was the, the original kind of German-Jewish um, uh, community that followed uh, the Reform Movement, which is a German-Jewish kind of uh, um, uh, um, development uh, from the early 19th century, um, and then kind of exported to, to the Americas. Uh, and then shortly after that, about 40 years later, there is an Eastern European Orthodox community that is established uh, in, in Idaho. And for a number of years, those two um, communities maintained their own synagogues. Over time, they blended and they kind of merged into um, the congregation that is now. Um, uh, but yes, there is a, there's a long and deep history. Idaho also is the first. So uh, Moses Alexander who was one of the founders of uh, uh, Congregation Beth Israel, which is the first German-Jewish uh, community that I mentioned. Uh, he is uh, he is first uh, the mayor of Boise, and then in 1915, he is elected governor of the state of Idaho. 
And Idaho is the first state to have a practicing Jewish governor elected as governor. Um, California had a, a governor who was voted earlier, but he was not a practicing Jew. Um, so, you know, if we want to split the historical hairs, there is one that we will split. And Idaho has the first, is, is elects the first practicing um, Jew as, as governor and, and then during World War I. That's a history to be proud of. Yes, right. absolutely. I mean, I think that it shows, um, it sh it shows the kind of like the depth and the complexity of kind of the history of Idaho and and who has been a part of society here and who is kind of being represented in the kind of um, in the uh, the upper echelons of Idaho society. In Idaho, we are fortunate to have so much religious diversity and so many different congregations and religious groups that have settled here or originated here. Can you talk a little bit about why that is such a valuable legacy for Idahoans to be a place of religious diversity? I, mean, I think that any place that has a variety of people in it is valuable. I mean, maybe that's, maybe I'm biased because I'm a historian that studies, you know, places that I don't live in and that I'm fascinated by and I'm fascinated by um, different languages being spoken and the ways that people kind of structure their lives. So maybe it's just a, um, uh, um, a byproduct of my profession that I think that these types of places are just enrich us all because we can have different conversations and you know, if we in, embrace the kind of Jewish mode, maybe we can have arguments, but those arguments can be fruitful and kind of meet, move somewhere. They don't have to be antagonistic or always antagonistic, right? I think that there's a, a way that, you know, societies can be built um, that have these various approaches to maybe religion or whatever it might be. And I think there's something to be valued there because I think that we only, we can only learn from that. Um, you know, I think that whenever um, we experience um, different cultures and different ways of thinking and, and, and just organizing ourselves in the lives and, the, and, and our lives and the way that we think about each other, think about ourselves is, is, is important and valuable. Um, you know, one of the, when I teach at the College of Idaho, I teach an introduction to Judaism class and um, Rabbi Dan Fink has always invited the class to, to come for a Shabbat service on a Friday and have students experience that because many of the students that uh, take my classes, uh, some of them do, but few of them um, uh, most of them do not have a Jewish background and don't have, so this is kind of an exposure uh, to Judaism and Jewishness for them. Uh, and he invites them, and a number of them take a number of them take him up on the offer, uh, and they they write about it and the transformative experience. That I mean, a number of them think that think of it right that that this is um, experience and exposure to something that they've never seen before and how much they value it. Um, and really, I think is is I think just exposing ourselves to to these. Um, to these just kind of ways of life, I think are important, and I think only, only help kind of create a, um, a more interesting and um, constructive kind of society, right? I mean, may, again, maybe I'm maybe I'm biased, maybe I'm kind of laying a little into what I personally am interested in, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I grew up in a kind of multicultural household. So I think to some extent I'm kind of influenced by that as well. <laughs> I agree and I really appreciate your description of how valuable it is to have that diversity. 
I am a person of faith and being curious about other faiths has only enriched and strengthened my experiences mm -hmm. and trying to understand um, the human experience, our religious views and faith are such a, or, the, or not having them, is such a part of our human experience yes. and it really helps us to appreciate and understand each other mm -hmm. and I really appreciate it. I hate to end on a sour note, but I do want to talk more about anti-Semitism. You would think that after the tragedy of the Holocaust, we wouldn't be seeing anti-Semitism anymore, um, but we are, and it has been on the rise in recent years. Why do these lies persist, do you think? It's hard to, this is going to be speculative. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get into the mind of, of an anti-Semite. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that these, I, I, I think, you know, I have a colleague who sometimes refers to anti-Semitism as Judeophobia. Mm -hmm. And I think that as long as there's fear of another, and in this case, fear of, for, for what we're talking about, Jews, um, and those fears that we know are, are based on kind of lies and misunderstandings and misperceptions, misconceptions, um, that I think that these ideas will persist. And I think that the reason that they do exist is because they're simple answers for people's ills. Uh, and I think that as long as there are societies, and I'm, I hope that I'm wrong about this, but I do think that if it's not Jews, it will be another minority culture that is targeted um, to explain why bad things are happening in the world or whatever it might be, right? Maybe that's too glib and that's flippant. Um, but I, I think that these ideas persist because there are still these unwarranted, un, unsubstantiated, unjustified fears of, of Jews in society. Uh, and and this constant kind of thinking of them as um, other and not belonging, um, I think, is based on that fear. And I think as long as that, those fears exist, then we will start to have we will still have people kind of put forward uh, the particular agendas um, that are kind of based on on, on these anti-Semitic ideas. Um, and I think now what we're seeing here, I think one of the changes that's happening is. Um, we're seeing, there's always been kind of grassroots level anti-Semitism historically, uh, but, we're, we, but we're starting to see kind of a shift away from um, this kind of top-down kind of um, governmentally sanctioned um, anti-Semitism to something that's kind of more into the fabric of, of various communities around the world. Um, and I think that that is something to be fearful of. Uh, and it is also something that we need to be constantly aware of when we're thinking about kind of the, the, the rise of anti-Semitism, that there is potentially something new about what's happening um, in the way that people are thinking about, about Jews. Um, and kind of, as to your point, um, completely uh, disregarding the, the historical record uh, and, a, and a factual understanding of kind of, um, uh, of Jewish history, Judaism, whatever it might be. Um, uh, and I think it's good to be um, to, to pay attention to that.
Not sure if that satisfyingly answers your question. Um, well, it was a terrible question. <laughs> but I appreciate what you said in particular about fear. When we fear each other, yes. that can lead to hatred, to, um, to not understanding each other. Yes. So if we can be curious about each other and seek to understand each other, that can eliminate fear and misunderstanding. And I think you did your part today helping us <laughs> to understand more about Jewish history and culture. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It's been um, wonderful to talk with you. And and again, you know, I think that what you know what the Idaho Humanities Council is doing is exactly this, right? I mean, like, there's something embedded in in the humanities to have these conversations to ask. I mean, your point is great to, to ask questions and, and explore and be curious. I think that's kind of, uh, those are those are approaches to, to, to thinking about some of these topics. And I appreciate the invitation to talk with you about them and um, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. Thank you. And I'll share more information about Dr. Underwood and his scholarship in the notes for this episode. Thank you.